0: Stiff, heavy fabric, brass buttons, the marbled bottoms of a hem. These details were forbidden fruit. All across the Soviet bloc, as it was called, Eastern European teens longed for a pair of blue jeans. If they were Levi's, well, that might just be the
1: jackpot. They'd trade nearly anything for a pair of Texas skis, as they were jokingly nicknamed. They scoured their surroundings for luxury items worth trading, even caviar or fur hats.
0: And if denim couldn't be bought or bartered, well, there were other routes. Take the sobering memory of one Georgian reporter. In the late 1970s, he watched as an innocent stranger was jumped by five people and stabbed, all in pursuit of not his wallet, but his jeans.
1: In the 70s and 80s, blue jeans were an international sensation that people might even kill for. There was simply no substitute for American-made jeans. Even when the Soviets began producing their own denim, it was met with steep criticism.
0: As one reader of the Soviet communist publication Pravda pointed out, when you can make jeans better than Levi's, that will be the time to start talking about national
1: pride. To wear a pair of Levi's jeans was a beacon. It signaled to everyone what you stood for. And with every US president after Richard Nixon proudly wearing blue jeans, they couldn't possibly be bad. Could they?
0: This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events.
1: We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar.
0: This season, we're digging into fashion, from its troubled origins, all the way through the never-ending churn of fast fashion. Today, we'll go back to the birth of the desire for denim and trace its climb to closets everywhere, with the help of a little good PR, of course. We'll see how its popularity sparked like wildfire, and how blue jeans went on to transform not just an era, but the entire industry.
1: With increased demand, though, came the issue of production. An insatiable lust for denim meant that soon quality became the servant to quantity. Even today, we're still trapped in a vicious production cycle that unravels more each year. blueberries that's science vs new season out on Spotify soon I wish I had invented blue jeans they have expression, modesty, sex appeal, simplicity all I hope for my clothes Yves Saint-Laurent.
0: True as his words may be, the eponymous French designer was talking about modern blue jeans, not the original denim. Had Saint Laurent been buttoned into the first pair of jeans, being both modest and seductive may have been, well, tricky.
1: Denim goes all the way back to 1850s San Francisco, where Bavarian immigrant Levi Strauss introduced the fabric to America. It was an unexpected kismet. Strauss's primary goal was to supply a variety of dry goods to Northern California's booming blue-collar industries. But with the gold rush exploding, what miners needed more than anything was pants, ones that could handle hours of bent knees and brushing against sharp tools.
0: With a little tinkering, Strauss and his tailor friend, Jacob Davis, crafted work pants with rivets securing the pockets. This new durability made them unlike anything before. Reinforced pockets and seams seemingly gave the jeans nine lives. What we know today as the Hallmark 501 Levi's Jean went into patent in
1: 1873. Jeans became the work pant of choice for industrious Western men. Everyone from farmers to miners to transportation drivers was wearing them.
0: With time, the trend rippled outward, and the push to get jeans into the mainstream came from an unlikely avenue. After America settled down following World War II, families were out and about vacationing. Those that trekked out west found cowboys and ranchers clad in blue jeans. Workwear or not, the pants looked good. And everyday Americans started wondering where they might get their own pair.
1: To meet greater demand, though, a few changes were imminent. For one, selvage denim, which had a tighter, more sturdy weave, wasn't feasible as a primary fabric. It took longer to process and was more expensive. As a result, hybrid fabrics and cotton blends soon became the norm.
0: This sounded innovative, sure, but the shift from salvage also signaled a decrease in craftsmanship and durability. The fabrics that replaced it were flimsier, certainly less likely to last for years.
1: But quality was merely an afterthought. The more important change was cultural, Jeans were no longer just workwear or something to be changed out of. They were something to be changed into, a staple, a need, all of which was soon to be touted by icons.
0: In the 50s and 60s, movie stars made denim cool. The fabric was nearly woven right into theater screens swaths of films featured denim-clad heartthrobs and leading ladies. Arguably, it all started with James Dean and his super-dyed Indigo 501s in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause.
1: And with each decade came more iconoclasts clad in denim. The 70s ushered in films like Grease and American Graffiti. Then came the 80s with The Breakfast Club and Back to the Future, viewers were assured that jeans were the uniform of the young and restless. Even the 1990s brought a fresh wave of appreciation for denim, though not through movies, through the news. Before the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the iconic image of dozens of people wearing jeans as they sat on top of it was seared into the international consciousness.
0: Denim, and specifically jeans were born an American phenomenon. So to the Soviet bloc of countries allied with communist Russia, a crisp pair of Levi's signified freedom, an incarnate, wearable symbol of the West. As the French philosopher Régis Debray put simply, there's more power in blue jeans and rock and roll than the entire Red Army.
1: As the reputation of American denim boomed abroad, no one was quite tracking the sad irony that was already in motion. The iconic homegrown heritage that catapulted blue jeans into fame was fading, fast.
0: Back in the 1970s and 80s, El Paso, Texas used to be the denim capital of the world. Big box and boutique designers alike looked to the little Southwest city to make their goods. Naturally, with production in its heyday, the adjacent industries required to make denim products also exploded. Producers of everything from pocket grommets to zippers soon inked leases in El Paso.
1: However, all that infrastructure would soon be moot in the wake of a little thing called NAFTA.
0: When President Bill Clinton signed the North American Free Trade Agreement in December of 1993, the winds of change, or trade rather, blew in hard. NAFTA was intended to supercharge international trade and keep import-export tariffs down between the US, Mexico, and Canada. But seeing lower labor costs abroad, many companies were quickly incentivized to export jobs overseas.
1: And at the same time, as demand in Europe for denim ramped up, an unlikely new manufacturing hub was developing. Shintang, China had always been an industrial town in the business of producing bananas. Go figure. But it soon pivoted to a much more lucrative industry, denim.
0: There, the small city could churn out the pears for a fraction of what it cost to make jeans in El Paso. One quarter the cost, in fact. Its output was unprecedented and unmatchable. El Paso had little reason to even try to keep up.
1: However, Shintong's advantage would soon become its death knell. To understand why, we need to pull back the lens and consider the long road fraught with complications to arrive at a pair of jeans.
0: Denim as we know it isn't one singular fabric. While it can be just cotton, it's more commonly a combination of various materials. And denim, unlike many other fabrics, has a very intricate production process. If we look at the cradle-to-grave cycle of a pair of jeans, we get a sense of just how many frightening twists are buried within the supply chain.
1: Coming up next... All that lurks within the pockets of your favorite genes. Hi, it's Kate.
0: From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, we all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal but hurt? In the new ParCast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead, use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my dear friend, host Alistair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. By the late 1980s, denim had transformed from an ugly but durable duckling for minors and workers to an international cultural staple. Movie stars, teenage renegades, and moms could agree, jeans were cool. What they didn't know, though, was that the road to one spiffy new pair of jeans is long and dirty. The cotton, chemical, and waste industries all step in to play their own critical roles.
1: First comes cotton, which is often sourced from multiple regions or even countries to create the yarn to be woven into denim fabric. Diversifying suppliers makes the denim more consistent season over season, especially if one supplier isn't available.
0: By metric tons, India leads the world in cotton production, followed by China, the US, and Brazil. And unfortunately, one population of workers abroad in particular is targeted for its ability to pick quickly and obediently children.
1: UNICEF estimates that around 11% of the world's children are underschooled or unable to attend altogether due to working in labor sectors. For cotton, children are sought after because their small fingers are able to pick the crop without damaging the fibers.
0: This unethical labor often goes undetected in hundreds, if not thousands, of supply chains. Big brands are often distanced from where their cotton is picked. These labels often don't even know who is actually engaging in their labor.
1: A don't know, don't ask mindset, it seems.
0: Which isn't to say that cotton sourcing doesn't hurt adults, too. According to research conducted by the University of Vermont, in California, cotton is the third highest crop responsible for workers' illnesses because of the extensive amount of chemicals sprayed on the
1: crop. Cotton crops must be heavily treated to ward off pests, which places a heavy burden on the workers tasked with sourcing it.
0: But with a steady stream of customers clamoring for the latest styles, sick workers are often just replaced, whatever it takes to move the commodity forward to the next step of the production cycle.
1: The raw cotton is then processed and spun into large spools of thread called ball warps. But it's not just cotton from one farm, according to the Vermont study. There can be multiple strains of cotton from multiple countries being spun into the same spool. According to Rachel Louise Snyder, author of Fugitive Denim, a single foot of thread might contain fibers from farms in Texas, Azerbaijan, India, Turkey and Pakistan.
0: And consider how far flung those places are. As cotton is flown from the source to the processing location, metric tons of carbon dioxide are pumped into the atmosphere as a result.
1: From there, the massive spools are either dyed, then woven into fabric, or vice versa, woven, then dyed. The weaving process is where the term warp and weft comes from the cross-hatching technique that makes denim fabric so wearable. But
0: wearability, much like anything else, comes with a price. To get the yarns to look just right, they need to be manipulated, doused, and tinkered with. And of course, after all these processes, the denim fabric is repeatedly washed or rinsed.
1: To make just one pair of jeans, it takes up to 2,000 gallons of water about 20 bathtubs worth. For comparison, it takes an average of 713 gallons of water to produce a cotton t-shirt. The extensive treatment process for jeans goes far beyond most other garments.
0: This holds true as denim moves on to the next phase, indigo dye treatment. Make no mistake, this is a heavy chemical operation. Forget the natural indigo dyes of the mid-1800s. The synthetic indigo we know today was born in a lab in 1882, the brainchild of German chemist Adolf von Bayer.
1: The problem with modern synthetic dye, though, is that it's not as simple as just treating the fabric and sending it off. Genes essentially have to be cured with chemicals, much like leather or suede, to seal in the dye and make them able to withstand all sorts of weather
0: or even just the wash. If you've ever bought a pair of jeans that rubbed off on some light-colored fabric, you can blame a poorly executed dye process. Even though the average pair of jeans carries about three quarters of a pound of chemicals, that's no guarantee they actually keep the dye in place.
1: But the chemicals within jeans, like the sulfur and petroleum that help bind the color, are just a small part of the waste that trails in their wake, namely into the environment.
0: While genes move to the next stages of finishing, those murky vats of synthetic indigo have to go somewhere.
1: The leftover dye liquid often simply flows back out and mixes with whatever water source a factory uses. Many factories don't have anywhere near adequate water treatment systems to offset the amounts of dye they use. Take sulfur, for instance, a popular binding component for synthetic dyes. It's cheap to use, which makes it an easy corner to cut.
0: But this comes at a high cost on the other side, as sulfur dye tends to be one of the hardest to filter back out from wastewater. So... Sometimes, factories just don't.
1: But if they share a water source that's also critical for drinking, which is often the case, the stakes are deadly.
0: Remember Shintang? It's still the denim capital of the world today. And this was exactly what happened there.
1: As one subject from 2017's River Blue documentary soberly recalled, the effects on the city's water sources were devastating. She said, you can predict the hit color of the season by looking at the river. There's so much waste output that it changes the river.
0: In the documentary, representatives from the environmental group Greenpeace found shocking carcinogen levels in the water outflows from Shintang's denim factories. As Refinery29 reported, Five neurotoxic and carcinogenic heavy metals, cadmium, chromium, mercury, lead, and copper, were present in 17 out of 21 water and sediment samples.
1: Shintong residents not only rely on this water for drinking, but for bathing, too. When locals began seeing a trend of skin rashes and lesions, it was clear that using the water from Shintang was a costly gamble. Another article even reported Shintang is so badly polluted that you can't give away houses for people to live there.
0: But to keep traveling with the denim in its turbulent journey to store floors, let's look to the finishing process. Denim isn't like a cozy wool sweater your Grammy knits. It's not ready to wear immediately.
1: Jeans need to be broken down and broken in, then resealed and reshaped to achieve that just old enough look. And one particularly widespread process called sandblasting may have you thinking twice about new lightly whiskered jeans.
0: When a pair of jeans are manually sandblasted, a worker basically uses an air compressor, outfitted with a hose, to shoot sand at the jeans at high force. This creates a soft, worn-in effect, like you'd been bending your knees in those jeans for years.
1: But however delightful the denim may look, the true cost again lurks just below the surface. During sandblasting, workers inhale crystalline silica, one of the components often used to weather the denim.
0: Once silica particles enter the lungs, The tissue springs into damage control to protect itself. The lung fibers envelop the silica, creating scarred lumps. Over time, constant scarring devolves into a condition known
1: as silicosis. If the scarred nodules grow exponentially, breathing becomes extremely difficult. And with shortness of breath comes a slew of other, more dire conditions. Coughing, frailness, and weight loss there's no cure for silicosis. So if it progresses too far, it's fatal.
0: Knowing this and realizing they'd been vending sandblasted wares for years, some retailers like Levi's and H&M announced back in 2012 that they'd no longer sell sandblasted denim.
1: But press announcements are hardly ironclad mandates. As the BBC reported, large garment purveyors often don't actually own the factories producing their goods abroad. They leave hiring in the hands of the local factory, which then contracts even smaller firms to do the work.
0: Similar to how child labor can occur under the radar, due to the length of the supply chain, sandblasting, regardless of the brand's stance, can be impossible to confirm. Poor labor regulations only add fuel to the fire. Left to their own devices, many of these subcontracted firms do not keep their employees' safety top of mind.
1: But back to that pair of jeans. After being woven, washed, and blasted, they're finally ready to be sold. To sell a
0: pair of jeans these days is a tricky process. On one hand, you'd think they sell themselves, A timeless necessity, right? Looking back at the past five decades, there hasn't been a time when some type of denim wasn't in style.
1: But consumers have grown more polarized in their buying habits. In one camp are people who prefer booming, fast fashion from the likes of Zara, H&M, and Fashion Nova. These kinds of retailers offer a dime a dozen jeans at bite-sized price points a cut-and-wash for everyone and every budget.
0: But the other camp includes individuals with some nagging feeling that the denim industry might be pretty dirty. So these buyers look for concrete proof that what they're paying for is not just a quality product, but also an ethical process.
1: Well, some companies have found the granddaddy of all loopholes to appeal to picky customers greenwashing.
0: It's a relatively new tactic, so it might not sound familiar. But over the past decade, brands have rolled out greenwashing to cater to what we'll call the conscious
1: consumer. For denim labels, this means crafting marketing and advertisements with very specific language and imagery all to convince potential buyers that the product has been made sustainably and or ethically.
0: It seems impossible for language to be both specific and vague, but greenwashing manages to achieve both. With denim, the devil lies in the exact opposite of the details. Ambiguous wording allows many brands to reel in customers, and that type of ambiguous wording is often a specific collection of phrases or terminology used across the fashion industry.
1: Architectural Digest recently boiled this down, explaining how brands capitalize on vague catch-all terms such as sustainable, socially responsible, eco-friendly, bioplastic, or recycled content. While some of these terms can be legitimate, they're often slapped onto products to convince buyers that they're good for the environment.
0: In reality, however, many of these labels don't change anything about their production practices. Different terms mean different things for different companies. One company may recycle all its denim scraps. Another company may simply recycle its plastic zip ties.
1: There is no gold standard across fashion, let alone denim. It's all a mirage.
0: Sadly, customers usually can't tell. Website Medium reported that because terminology related to environmental impact is vague and often manipulated, a huge knowledge gap exists for buyers. And hearing buzzy phrasing like alternative energy and sustainable sourcing makes it all the easier to make what seems like the responsible choice
1: by the genes. Greenwashing goes even further, too, layers down into the supply chain. Take using a red herring tactic, as Architectural Digest puts it. This can be when one minuscule part of the denim creation process is exploited to make the whole brand seem more ethical than it really is. According to their reporting, though a pair of jeans may be made with irresponsible manufacturing practices, the fact that it's mailed in a compostable envelope without additional packaging is often enough to bait the customer away from realizing the true gravity of their purchase.
0: The effect works. It's a pat on the back for those who may be worried about their buying habits, a way to reassure consumers that their choices
1: are ethical. But both sustainably made and fast-fashioned denim often share the same fate once they make it home. A slow demise.
0: Coming up, our denim careens towards its unraveling with every cycle through the wash.
1: For all of the chemicals, pollution, and waste it takes to make a pair of jeans, the most wasteful time in denim's life cycle may just be when it reaches its forever home, with us, the wearer.
0: Seems counterintuitive, right? How could just owning a pair of pants or a jacket be more destructive than all the chemical waste, hazardous machinery, and carbon emissions to get them into our hands?
1: Well... Turns out sustainability often stops with the consumer. Once a purchase is made, what will become of a pair of jeans and its packaging is completely our responsibility.
0: For instance, the packages are denim arriving. Even if that packaging is recyclable or compostable, we're still on the hook to make sure it's disposed of properly. It doesn't take much to accidentally toss a cardboard box in the trash or maybe just the plastic slip that the denim comes in, since there's often some layer of packing needed to protect the garment itself.
1: Whether we properly recycle the packaging or not, we're undoubtedly left giddy with our new wares. Maybe it's a crisp white denim jacket, or high-rise stretchy jeans, and we wear it and wear it until the time-honored question presents itself.
0: To wash or not to wash?
1: In a perfect world, not to wash. Or at least, wash much less frequently. As we've mentioned, denim isn't the same as its 1800s mining days. It's no longer a workhorse, forever garment. The majority of jeans turned out today are of average, if not mediocre, quality.
0: Which directly connects to their construction. Modern synthetic fabrics are most popular for their stretchability and softness. On the surface, this seems like a good thing. More comfortable jeans, less tugging and pulling. 100% cotton jeans are notoriously brutal to break in.
1: So of course, once we do find the perfect pair, we're not thinking about the long-term ramifications. Namely, how they're not built to be a forever pair.
0: The washing and care process for denim can be one of the most destructive in the entire cradle-to-grave process, which seems impossible since making just one pair of 501 Levi's guzzles down nearly 902 gallons of water, the equivalent of running a garden hose for 106 minutes non-stop.
1: The reason laundering denim is so destructive certainly isn't listed next to the wash cold, hang dry instructions. But if you look closely at the composition of your jeans, at those percentages of fabrics, you may find a clue.
0: Microplastic sounds like something out of science fiction, light years away from good old American denim. But unfortunately, That's not the case.
1: Microplastics are tiny fibers, thinner than even a strand of hair, woven within most synthetic fabrics. Take a look at the label of your jeans. You'll probably see something like a combination of cotton, polyester, elastane, or lycra. Maybe even all four of them.
0: It's not all that surprising given that website Vox found recently that synthetic fibers are about 60% of the material that makes up our clothes worldwide. They're unmatched in their dualities, cheap but versatile, buttery smooth but sturdy. We can thank them for wicking in our athletic gear and warmth in our winter jackets.
1: But for all that coziness and comfort, of course, there's a cost. Despite all our innovations, we're stuck with the plastic we use. It doesn't biodegrade. When denim with synthetic materials runs through the washing machine, it sheds these tiny microplastics. These are then carried out through the washer's disposal system and inevitably filter into the larger wastewater grid.
0: This is the part Finding Nemo got right. All drains, more or less, do lead to the ocean. And there, microplastics threaten marine wildlife on various levels. For one, fish and other animals can ingest the microplastics. As the oceanic food chain grows, that means the microplastics are being eaten by larger and larger organisms.
1: And unfortunately, We are where the buck stops in the food chain. Research by National Geographic found that humans may be consuming anywhere from 39,000 to 52,000 microplastic particles a year.
0: But how much is that really? A study conducted by researchers at the University of Newcastle in Australia estimated that people consume about five grams of plastic a week. Roughly the equivalent of a credit card.
1: Mmm, delicious. As Emily Woglum from the environmental nonprofit Ocean Conservancy explained, we can't simply filter out microplastics from the ocean. Once they're in, they're stuck. She underscored, the focus has to be on doing as much as you can to prevent the waste in the first place.
0: Which returns the focus to us, the wearers. Surprisingly, it's a bit more complicated than just how often we run a pair of jeans through the laundry. It's as specific as what type of washing machine we use.
1: One University of California study found that top-load washing machines saw seven times as many microfibers released compared to front-load washing machines. The front-load washers tend to have motions that are less abrasive on the fabric, not to mention that they use less water.
0: But the other pant leg must drop. Front-loading machines aren't as popular since they're often more expensive and less time efficient. It's just easier to stomach the price tag on a new pair of jeans rather than shelling out for a new washer.
1: So what becomes of our denim when it reaches the end of its life cycle? Do we recycle it? It's possible but that process
0: also isn't easy. If we've learned anything so far, it's that both sellers and buyers love an easy way out.
1: As one sustainability advocate told Sourcing Journal, recycling clothing isn't as easy as dumping aluminum cans or plastic bottles on the curb.
0: Compared to smaller recyclables, clothing is heavy and bulky. Denim also has an odd and unpredictable timeline of when it may need to be recycled. Everyone's jeans wear out at different times, which makes it all the more difficult to envision an infrastructure to support fabric recycling like we have for glass and paper.
1: So when someone tears a hole or fades through their beloved cigarette leg stunners, they often just toss them.
0: As of 2019, the volume of thrown away clothing reached its highest yet for Americans. In just 20 years, the amount we toss each year has gone from 7 million tons to 14 million tons. This adds up, as in the same time period, clothing production has basically doubled with the average consumer buying 60% more pieces of garment compared to 15 years ago. Yet each clothing item is now kept Half as long.
1: So not only are we making more clothes, we're making more low-quality items and burning through them twice as fast. Despite the fact that some of these pieces, like always stretch jeans, may appear more sustainable for using synthetics over cotton, the everyday wear on the garments means we're keeping them in our closets for far shorter periods. And then, into the trash they go. It may be hard to stomach, but 84 percent of clothing ends up in landfills or incinerators.
0: Sadly, this is the end of the cradle-to-grave cycle. From the scrap remnants of denim that end up in municipal landfills, to our own purchases eventually traveling there too, all roads lead to the
1: garbage. Is there anything we can do? Maybe,
0: but it's a tall order. To make headway on the cannibalistic cycle of denim manufacturing, which feeds on everything from raw materials to workers, denim has to be completely overhauled.
1: Which looks daunting and less chic.
0: There are compostable fabrics that can be used for denim that biodegrade, like hemp and linen but they don't look or feel quite like those baby blues that fit oh so perfectly. Hemp and linen wrinkle easily, and neither holds that rich indigo color quite the same as cotton.
1: And more, if we want to keep our beloved cotton jeans, the production process needs to be redesigned from top to bottom. In order to churn out denim that doesn't pollute the environment, Big-box retailers would have to retrofit nearly all the steps of their supply chain.
0: Suppliers, chemicals, machinery, and labor practices would all have to be addressed.
1: Which, of course, comes at the cost of the bottom line. Corporations would have to accept selling less and earning less in order to mitigate the steep consequences already in play in the denim industry.
0: For brands that have spent decades learning the art of the sale, that's a hard sell. The only thing more valuable than indigo
1: blue is green. And demand for denim isn't waning anytime soon. According to 99% Invisible's Avery Truffleman, Americans on average own seven pairs of jeans. On any given day, half the population of the world ventures out in a pair of blue jeans.
0: So we're surrounded by others reinforcing our sartorial choice. As we pass by billboards and stores, it's not a question of if we should buy the next great pair. It's when. How they'll look, how they'll feel.
1: How they will make us look, how they will make us feel.
0: If we take that cradle-to-grave cycle into account, a new pair may just feel grim.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.
0: You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. Before we go, I hope you remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.